Welcome to Courageous Conversation with Teresa W. Gamble, powered by Carcia Resource Professional Consultant. Courageous Conversation is a diversity, equality, exclusive initiative. It's a gracious space for a meaningful discussion about culture, life, business, work, learn, live, worship, and Greetings, everyone, and welcome. This is Teresa Gamble. Many of you know me as the host of Courageous Conversations, but this particular recording is very unique to my doctoral program of trauma-informed educational practices. And this particular interview and conversation, it has to be with a licensed um, master social worker. And y'all know my girl, Elaine M. Brandon, Y'all should be familiar with her on my show and my podcast from all the amazing things she tell us about advanced directives, the sense of belonging, her amazing nonprofit revivals, and that's just scratched the surface what she does. We finna really take a deep dive in her 35 years of experience as a social worker. So the purpose of this interview today is that public school administrators, they traditionally, they work outside of agencies to provide support for students. They may continue to refer to pediatricians, therapists, or any professionals that's needed. Typically, these referrals are made through individual educational plans. Most of you may know it as IEPs or 504 plans to address accommodations for our students or through parent-teacher meetings with input from guidance counselors, social workers, and school nurses. So today, we're going to talk with Elaine about best practices for trauma-informed students in K-20. I am including college students because sometimes college students are overlooked and they undergo trauma, may not in their early childhood, but as they grow and go through life. So welcome, Elaine. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here today. That is great. Um, just from our conversations off camera and your experiences, and I get to have a backdoor sneak peek of what the life of a social worker is, have made me a huge advocate for what you do and all the Aww. other amazing social workers. Because even though I worked in the healthcare field, I really did not have a clue all the logistics that you all handle behind the scenes. So for that, I commend you. Thank you. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So we're going to dive, dive right into our questions so we can learn about all the many different roles Elaine has worn from being a child protective investigator, from a foster care social worker, and a supervisor of a foster care workers. Um, hospital social worker is what she's doing now. A service coordinator with people with intellectual and development disabilities and she even managed early childhood education in the daycare. So we're going to get a plethora of insight from Elaine because of the amazing many roles that she has taken on in these 35 years. And I am so super excited. She even making time to help the new social workers that's coming on the scene get equipped to do what they need to do so they can continue the torch and the amazing 
work that she has laid out. So Elaine, prior to the pandemic, as a social worker, a medical social worker, because that's your role now, mm-hmm. what encounters have you experienced with trauma-affected students who've been abused? Well, you know, as you were giving that introduction, all I could think about was 35 years flashing before me for every field of practice that I've worked in and all of the different people that I've worked with, just certain ones, um, kind of emotional, just flashing before my my face. And so, um, because I just, I honor them and I cherish them so much and um, think about them and people that I don't even work with anymore. I always wonder what's going on with them every now and then somebody will come back and let me know, you know, how they're doing. So as a investigator for child protective services, I dealt with children who have um, endured tremendous trauma, um, stories that'll make anybody's skin crawl, hair grow, (laughs) chest hurt. Um, And so when you mention the older um, minors, I should say, Mm -hmm. and then also the young adults, because some of the parents of the children that I was charged to protect were actually children themselves. Wow. So seeing a child experience that trauma and then the young parent experience the trauma and then a lot of times the grandparents or other family members were young as well. There's just trauma all around. Um, in child protection, not only in the investigative phase where you see in the report and then going out cold mm. to see whether or not the allegations that were reported are can be substantiated or not. And just the trauma of someone knowing that they're going to interface with a social worker before we even start the investigative process mm. can be can have a long-term effect on somebody. And even my role now in the hospital as a master of social worker, acute care, I have to be very careful when I encounter school age individuals and let them know what my role is because some of them may have had past experience with a child protective services worker that weren't so good. Wow. So in child protection, child is the emphasis. So a social worker in that capacity has to have a laser focus on who their client is at the moment while at the same time being very sensitive and compassionate to the outliers, what I call them. So it's an incredible experience, while an honor too, but an incredible experience to have to protect the child from someone who 
birth the child or from someone who is primarily responsible for that child. Wow. And then sometimes to even protect the child from themselves because the trauma that they have faced as an abused individual or a neglected individual, they can internalize that trauma and be hard on themselves. So I'm not only protecting the child from the perpetrator, I'm protecting the child from themselves. Wow. They never think of it that way. Wow, that's amazing. So what has been your interaction with trauma-affected students in the healthcare system as a a acute care uh, medical social worker? Well, we do have a pediatric department in the hospital where I work and the hospitals that I affiliate with. So um, there are times when a child, school-aged child, may um, have an accident come to the hospital and um, that can be a traumatic experience. So one year I um, developed a program during Child Abuse Awareness Month, which is in April, by the way. And um, I developed a program at our hospital called the Teddy Bear Care Fair. to help debunk some of the myths that young people have when it comes to coming to the hospital. Wow. So I sent some high school students to elementary schools with a kind of intake form. Mm -hmm. And so they presented this form to these children for them to take home to their parents. So they took their stuffed animals, their baby dolls. Somebody even bought a monster truck. I mean, they took their toy Uh and they triaged their own toy. So I had several categories on there and, you know, the emoji, smiley face, the throw up face, you know, Uh all that so that they can tell me what their charge, their doll or, you know, stuffed animal was feeling. So they brought that card to the hospital and before they came in, the ambulance was out there. So they got a chance to have a tour. A police officer was out there and they were giving teddy bears and stuff out too. Then they came into the hospital and who greeted them was uh, our auxiliary. And our auxiliary is made up of senior citizens. And the reason I wanted them to be the ones to greet, in addition to some uh, actual intake workers from the hospital, was because I wanted them to have the the grandma pawpaw effect. That's comfortable Because we do have volunteers in our hospital. um, And so a lot of times when children do come in, I'll get those volunteers to kind of, hey, come and clean up a little bit while you know, we're in here or just kind of walk by, you know, with a clipboard so that they could see that older adult. That's good. So they came in and they had an opportunity to do some color sheets because I wanted to kind of see how were they coloring? Was it angry coloring? Was it 
in the lines? Was it bright colors? Was it dull colors? Because that could tell you a lot about how a child is feeling. I've learned that from some play therapists that I've engaged with um, that engage in education. Because I'm not a therapist myself, but I do have some clinical skills and a clinical background. That's good. So after they went through that, their number was called or their name was called, and they were ushered by these high school students, these same students that gave them the triage form, because familiarity is really important when it comes to reducing the trauma to children in hospitals. So they ushered them now to the hospital, which was really our conference room where every single department had a section and, and they were running it just like you would in a hospital. When that child came in, they presented, you know, here's my doll and she's got a broken arm, look. And the triage person says, oh my gosh, she needs to go to the emergency department. So they shifted her over to the part of the conference room that was the emergency department. And there was a nurse. This particular um, event we did, there was a male nurse. Okay. And he was fully garbed, had his little section set up just like emergency department. And then when he called for surgery, the little surgery department, they had like a tray on wheels and they wheeled it over there and all <laughs> on there and wheeled it all the surgery. And so the children got, the pediatrician was very active um, in that particular event. And so they got an opportunity to go to all of the different stations, including hand washing and learning the importance of that and snack so they can learn the importance of nutrition. So we did all of that just so that I could demonstrate to these children um, what it is, what it can be like to come to the hospital and kind of debunk some of the myths. That's amazing. I love that event. Can't wait till you can do it again. Yes. <laughs> so with limited access to patients in the hospital be, during this pandemic, what challenges did it pose for trauma-infected students if their parents become hospitalized and visitation is restricted for them to see them or have contact with them. Very traumatic. Um, seeing a parent being sick is one thing. Um, hearing about the parent being sick is another thing. And visitation being stifled and cut off or limited can be very traumatic. So I had to get creative. Mm -hmm. um, and so because young people these days are really into technology. Right. Um, and so having FaceTime and having Zooms, we have iPads at the hospital. And we have um, these other devices where people can um, see each other virtually. Mm -hmm. So that was really important to have. Also, when I mentioned to you, we have a labor and delivery department at the hospital where I work. Um, there were times where nobody could be there with that mom. Wow. And it may be a young mom, mm -hmm. first time mom. Right. One visitor may be able to come in at the time of delivery and then they're there limits and then they have to leave. Mm. So the whole electronic um, virtual visits became very important 
um, I was limiting myself into rooms and, and still am um, because I want to have as less contact with people as I can to keep myself safe. And then also I want to be one less person that that person has to deal with. Right. So when I am doing uh, visits with people on the phone, I try to make that very comfortable um, and I explain why. I have not had a case where I've explained why I'm not before someone that they haven't thanked me for that. Wow. And so because of that, um, we could have a conversation and, and it might not even be on Zoom. I do a lot of assessments just telephonically. And I find, I'm finding though, that that may be a little less intimidating mm. because when I introduce myself, Hey, I'm Elaine and I'm the social worker of the hospital. I assist the doctor with discharge plans. That's usually the first cut of my speech so that when they hear I'm the social worker of the hospital. Right. And I assist the doctor with discharge plans. That's kind of how I feel that they're feeling. Right. And then I listen to them and explain to them why I'm not in the room. They thank me. And then they can have that conversation with me without being with me. Because right. as cute as I am, I can be intimidating <laughs> just because of the nature of my job. Exactly. So I'm actually finding that a lot of people, even older people, elderly, um, find that okay. That's good. And um, and and someone even told me it was the tone of my voice that settled her. I'm mm. like, well, that's good, you know. And then when they walk, when they leave the hospital, because my office sits right off the entrance, and I have a little window at my door, and mm -hmm. I'll tell them that I said, when you get ready to get discharged, wave to me, and they'll wave, and then they can make a connection, a face to a name. That's good. That's good. I love it. I love it. That hospitality and continuity care and bedside manner, that is beautiful. So it even goes to show that even social workers has to have that, not just doctors and nurses. So what practices do you employ with trauma-affected students after losing their parents to death? It could be mm -hmm. natural causes or even from the pandemic, because I know you have seen a lot and experience a lot because you help with that discharge plan, like you said. Well, I'll tell you, grief groups for children are so important. Mm -hmm. And here in the state that I live, we do have some of those. Okay. Now, the unfortunate thing is that we don't have a lot of those in the community right. that I work in because I work in a rural community. Mm -hmm. But those... Um, few behavioral health agencies have some innovative ways of how they can still do that grief therapy, um, whether it's virtual or whether it's in person. Some of the, a couple of the agencies have people come in mm -hmm. um, every other month or every other week. They, um, some, they have group and then they can meet with people individually in their homes. So I really think that uh, social worker having a connection with play therapists and grief groups that are specifically geared towards school age individuals, whether they're college 
or whether they're elementary school, whether they're preschool mm -hmm. is really important for us to develop those relationships. And then the introduction and the handoff to those relationships is so important. For example, I would never uh, give a guardian over a, uh, a young person um, who's lost a parent a phone number and tell them to call. Mm. I would always set it up. That's Let me good. set the stage for this handoff because remember that individual may have had that encounter with me. Right. And so now they're not getting ready to have any encounters with me. I'm passing them on to somebody. That's true. So they're not only being passed on to auntie, uncle, grandma, papa, because mom or dad has passed away. Mm -hmm. Now I'm passing them on. So that is a very delicate situation to be in and has to be handled very delicately. So if I don't have a relationship with these individuals, it is going to be harder. Wow. So I encourage social workers to develop those intimate relationships with those collateral contacts so that when you're handing off, that child feels comfortable being handed off to my friend. Right. Who's going to help you and continue to help you. Oh, is he named that's your friend? Yeah. And you know what? When you get over there, make sure you ask him about Pappy. Who's pa Pappy is their dog. You know, so I have to know those kind of things about right. that individual, whatever personal stuff that they're willing to disclose during their sessions. So when that child comes in, Missy Lane told me about Pappy, you know, and let me see a picture and then show them in the phone, you know, so then that just that whole warm handoff is going to be key. But, but that does, that takes some background work on my part. Before this even happens, before I even know Susie Q's father's going to die, I have got to have that relationship with those collateral contacts. That's good. So, and as a follow-up question, when a child is grieving that way, where does the social worker interact with um, the educators that's a tie with that student since she was talking about the collateral contacts? It, it, exactly the same way. Okay. So if I know, and I'm going to know, because I'm going to do a thorough assessment that that child's in fourth grade mm -hmm. at such and such elementary school, it is going to be important for me to reach out to that teacher. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, after all the consents are signed and there's no HIPAA issues or confidentiality issues, I'm going to talk to that teacher. I'm going to talk to that principal, that social worker at the school, who's my colleague. Right. So that they can understand what went on in the hospital and what services have been recommended to this individual that they're getting ready to get engaged in. So that when that child comes to school, they already know and that they're already linked. And then also to get some of the mechanics out the way, to get all the releases signed so that nobody has to say, well, I'm sorry, I can't admit or deny whether I'm this child's teacher, blah, blah, blah. Well, we don't need to go through all that. So getting that stuff, that logistical stuff, and that's where a hospital social worker has to be keen in on what their policies are mm -hmm. in their hospital, uh, what the school policies are. Right. What what is the therapist's policies on sharing information? 
That's good. And making sure that they're up on their training so that when this happens, we don't traumatize people more because we were so quick to help somebody that we didn't do things decent and in order. And now it's come back to backfire. That could interrupt a person's services. That could limit the services. And then that could damage the relationship between me and that colleague, that social worker. If I didn't do stuff right, when that social worker gets it, they're like, oh my gosh, what did Miss Elaine do? Now that's going to hinder me from doing what I need to do. And then who is the um, recipient of that is the child. Exactly. Who's now, whose services are now hindered because we weren't doing what we needed to do on the back end logistically. Because a lot of times people um, have a tendency to throw all that stuff out the window because it's all about helping this person. Yeah, but you're not really helping them when you go outside of the policies and procedures and the laws in your state. That's good. That's real good. So when a trauma-affected student must be transported outside of their community for medical treatment, when the parents have to use separate transportation from their child, how do you help manage that process, especially you know, with the pandemic going on and the first responders are trying to stay safe, they're trying to keep the patients safe, to avoid, you know, too much exposure and contact. How do you help facilitate that since you're a key vital asset in discharging, discharge planning or even trans, um, transferring patients to another facility? And that happens a lot when it comes to young people because not every medical um, facility is equipped to handle specialty care mm-hmm. for young people. Um, there are medical facilities in our country that are burn units just for pediatrics, right? cancer just for pediatrics, things like that. So there's a lot of times where young people do have to get transferred out of state, out of Mm -hmm. town. um, And then here's the the trauma to their families. So one of the things that I talked about before was those relationships. That is important. Mm-hmm. There is a um, service available and I'm going to say the name of the service. And of course, I'm not endorsing them or um, they're not paying me to say this, but it's a really good service. And that's the Ronald McDonald House. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, hey, wait a minute, they do need to use me as their spokesperson because I do <laughs> use them a lot. But anyway, <laughs> but making sure that parents have that connection with their child. And lodging is really important because when a child has to leave a hospital, mm-hmm. a lot of, it, it's an emergency situation. They're getting care flighted and that parent can't be in that helicopter because only so, many, so much weight can be in that helicopter. And if there's tubes and machines and all this kind of stuff, plus the nurse and the, it may be a specialty nurse in there, then the pilot and the co-pilot. Parent may not be able to be in there. Right. Um, And so they're driving to the hospital, seeing the helicopter go ahead of them. So number one, making sure that they're equipped. Do they have a lunch? Let me run to the cafeteria and let me get them something to eat. Um, Oh my gosh, they're all empty. Let me see if I got a gas card so that I can get them um, gas. So they can get on to the hospital. 
seeing if they can get a police escort because they may have to drive fast. Or if I need them to not drive fast, but I want them to get there safely and I'm concerned about if they're going to drive erratic or not, I may have to call the police department and say, hey, look, get highway patrol to just kind of follow. Not, not follow for ticket, not follow to help rush them through traffic, but just make sure that they're safe. Because mm-hmm. if they happen to roll over, I need uh, the Highway Patrol right there. Right. So those kind of things, putting that in place. And also um, making sure that once they get there, they have lodging. And that Ronald McDonald house is a one-stop shop. I mean, parents can stay there. They can eat there. Um if they can't uh, stay in the room um, with the child, usually the Ronald McDonald house is like within walking paces from a hospital. And, and ensuring that child that that's what's going to happen. Because there are a lot of children that have never been up in an aircraft. Right. And, and that can be... Just- that can be traumatic oh, for so them. So traumatic. And if and if this child is alert and oriented and can can see an oxygen thing up their nose and and they're poking them and they got an IV in them and, and then they can't have a mommy or their daddy and they being loaded into an aircraft. Because every child's situation in an aircraft having been, oh, let me sit by the window. Oh, look at that. It has been traumatic. Wow. And so that trauma can come back to them if they've been in an aircraft before. Um, If a child has special needs Mm. and they're in an ambulance and that ambulance is going 100 miles an hour. Wow. That is too much stimulation. So a doctor then may have to do some mechanical restraints with that child, sedate them a little bit so that just like a dentist would, if they get ready to, you know, do some dental work on a child um, so that they can be comforted and that can reduce some of the trauma. That's Um, good. And then just explaining to that child, hey, you know what? Remember that ambulance that you saw when you brought your teddy bear into the care fair? Mm-hmm. Where my airfare come in, and you know they may have come, and and that's why I do a little inventory of who came. So if I know, you know, such and such child came through, wait a minute, that child, I think that child came to the teddy bear care fair. Remember that ambulance that you was in, and this and that and the other. Yeah, well they gonna be driving fast, you know, and then sometimes, <laughs> and it's, especially with the boys, then we we gonna be going fast. Yeah, y'all gonna be zooming. <laughs> so it's really kind of all in the presentation, just kind of. And, and my mommy and daddy gonna be there. Mm-hmm, they already gone. Are they gone? Yeah, they're gonna be there when you get there, you know. And so, a lot of it sometimes is. Um, putting yourself in this in, in a in a situation that this is your child. Right. And are you gonna are you going to fall apart? Or are you gonna kick in and make it seem like, ah, oh, this is all okay. Yes. When you when you when you can see that man, this may not be okay. So um some of that trauma work has to be within the person that's delivering the the, the trauma work right. so that the other person is not being traumatized 
And then being able to, after that child is gone, after that family is gone, now I got to regroup, de-traumatize myself so that I can help the next one. Because the next one may come in three seconds from that. I mean, I have like a whole day. Let me go to the spa. Let me do. No, no, no. It may happen right Mm -hmm. So being, being ready, being ready to being ready to deliver the service can help reduce the trauma on a person that's in a traumatic situation. That is amazing. Everyone, we're talking about best practices for trauma-informed students, K through 20, and we're speaking with Elaine and Brandon, a licensed master social worker, certified acute social worker, case manager, and a case, I mean, she have titles (laughs) that that she stand and live by and we're just asking and having a deep dive conversation on her role as a social worker of many hats handling traumatic experience when it comes to trauma uh, impacted students so now we finna get into a little bit deeper in some cases and you know feel free to share vignettes um, as much as you can share so our listeners and our viewers can get an insight and get a better understanding to how to identify signs and symptoms of trauma affected students especially our educators so how do you comfort a student a trauma affected student when they learn about a classmate's death mm-hmm. how do you help them cope because a lot of times Children handle death differently than adults. And yeah. a lot of times it's nonverbal. They're not, they're act out. So as a social worker, and this incident occurs in a classroom setting with the educator and you're called into the classroom, what is the course of action that should be taken? Well, one of the first things, and again, because I'm not a therapist, but I hang out with therapists Got it. <laughs> and I work for some therapists. And so I mimic a lot of what they do. And one of the things that I saw a therapist, a child therapist, a play therapist do that I thought was so innovative when they came into a classroom. And so I kind of stole that tool. And so this is what I've done one time. It was the second grade classroom, actually. And a child in the class was living actually with their grandparents. Mm-hmm. because their parents were incarcerated so that's trauma I know right so they're living with grandparents <clears throat> and grandpa dies mm-hmm. so this children um I was called in to talk with the children before the child whose grandpa died came back to school mm-hmm. to kind of talk to them about what do you say how do you act what kind of questions did you ask? Because, you know, children are asked all the time, is your grandpa, you know, is yeah. your grandpa die? You know, that kind of thing. They, they don't have the filter right. because they're so young. So to teach them those filtering conversations. And one of the things that the therapist said that I, that I mocked and mimicked and then told the therapist about it later and, that I, was, and I got the thumbs up. So I knew that, that I was on track. And the teacher felt comfortable. So I knew I was on track too because she was in the background and I was... Because she knows these students better than I do. Right. And even though I met with her ahead of time, got a kind of brief on who the children are, who's rambunctious, who don't know how to sit down very well, who is kind of shy. Who, you know, so I kind of knew 
Um, even though I didn't know names, I, I kind of knew faces from the way she, you know, the one that wears the pigtails all the time. That's the girl that blah, blah, blah. So I kind of knew that. So that was, a, that was the first part of it. Setting that tone, engaging with that teacher because that teacher spent, those teachers spend more time with those children sometimes than the parents do. So that teacher is the key person when dealing with children in school, really. And then the maintenance people, because Mm -hmm. they're the one picking up, then the cafeteria workers, because they're the one feeding. They know, oh, she don't like pizza. So talking to school personnel Mm -hmm. about the children is really what helped me know who they are. Okay, that's the first thing. Then, then, so then what I did was I asked the um, students if any of them had any pets. Mm. And so I let them tell me all about, you know, their dogs and their fish and this and that. And, the other. and then true to form, I had a fish, but he died. That's exactly, they just walked me right into it. And then I was able to say, you had a fish and he died. What kind of fish? So I didn't go into how did the fish die and um, all of that stuff first. I let the person tell me about, I go fishing with my grandpa. Oh, grandpa. Mm -hmm. Person just had a grandpa to die. Okay, I'm going to use that. You know, so I'm thinking of all these things that I'm going to use as they're talking to me. That's good. Because I'm just Missy Lane in circle time. Right. I wasn't introduced as Missy Lane going to come and talk to you about Susie Q's grandpa. Mm-mm. They just walk in the class and they see another adult. Mm-hmm. They already have a good relationship with their teacher or not, but they see somebody else that they can play with. <laughs> and, and that's how these second graders work. And because I have that demeanor, first of all, I didn't come suited up like I'm going to court. Right. I came to play. Right. You know, Chuck Taylor's on, you know, t-shirt <laughs> on. I came to play. Right. Um, and in fact, even after my talk with them, I was on the playground because I came right before recess um, and taught some people how to double dutch and all of it. So that was kind of the, the, the tail end of it. But dealing with them right where they are. Mm-hmm. And that's what social workers do anyway. So that's right up my alley, right where they are. So when I learned about this, this child's fish and how they got the fish and why they got the fish and then it was, but then he died. Really? How? And then that's all you have to say. And then they'll talk. And then somebody else will talk about their dog. Somebody else to talk about the cat from Miss So-and-So's cat that lived down the street. And so I kept it on that. And then I brought it home. Well, y'all see Susie Cuse out here today. Yeah, because her granddaddy died. Really? You know about that? Yeah. Who told you? My mommy. And then they just went on. So then I kind of picked up on where the parents left off. Because then I got a feel for whose parents talk about stuff, whose parents don't, how they explain things. And all I did was just... I, I, I just kind of the same plane as those parents. So I was being supportive to the parents and the parents didn't even know. Right. So then walk them through that. So then the outcome was I did ask the teacher because I followed up. That's another thing social workers do. We follow up. Mm-hmm. So I followed up with the teacher and asked, how was it when this child came back to school? She said, well, first of all, 
when any when any person is not in class because they've been sick or they've mm-hmm. been on vacation, we we hug anyway. We're a hugging <laughs> class. Right. You know, and so when they came in, she's back and they hug. And so that and then somebody said, and so your grandpa died. And then she was like, yeah. And then they talked about it. And then somebody even said, because when my fish died and Missy Lane, and she had to say, well, who's Missy Lane? And then they told the girl, I was crying for days when that teacher told me that they, they talked to her about what we talked about. That's good. So I ended up having to come back to the class <laughs> so this girl could see who Missy Lane was. <laughs> So, so those relationships are really important. That was something I hadn't even planned on doing, but the teacher asked that, you know, wow. hey, can you come back? Can you come during re- recess, you know, or whatever, and this and that. And I'll say, oh, sure. And came back. And so that's how that worked. And then one of the things that I did do, though, is um, I, w- I did go to a PTA meeting. Um, it was later, later in the year, I went to a PTA meeting just to thank the school for allowing me to come in and um, tell the parents um, what service I provided to this teacher's class and how I um, appreciated them trusting me with their students, with their That's, children. Wow. I bet the parents was very appreciative. Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> That's good. That is amazing. So we finna take an, uh, another deeper dive. Um, when a trauma affected student was sexually abused, out, is a sexually abused outside of the home, but unable to tell an adult like their parent mm-hmm. and their siblings due to they were already undergoing physical abuse in the home by the parent and the siblings. What is the course of action to help the trauma-affected students, whether when they notify the teacher? Hmm. What collective Hmm. collateral connections does the teacher needs to tap into to help this trauma-affected student? Well, the, the, the emphasis is on protection. Right. And as a former child protective worker, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot that goes into how to protect that child. Mm -hmm. And each case is different. Um, I can think of a case where I've had to protect a child from several perpetrators. Mm -hmm. So in protecting that child, notifying that teacher, right. notifying that school personnel, who now can pick up and not pick up this child. Right. Um, notifying the school where this child is now placed, making sure those mechanics are in place. So that school really knows what's going on. And they may or may not be able to know all the details. Mm-hmm. And that can make a teacher or, or a principal or superintendent feel very uncomfortable. Right. So as a social worker, giving them the information that they need to know and explaining why other information they may not be able to know. Right. And asking them to trust themselves as educators 
to be able to still educate even though they don't know stuff. That's good. That is good. Because there are some things in certain situations, especially in small towns. Right. And it's not that, oh, I'm I'm thinking you're going to go blab to your husband when you get home. or It's not that. For the protection of that child, I have to protect their information just like I'm protecting their body from that perk. Right. So, but back on what I was saying before, if I have that relationship with principal so-and-so and I had been to a PTA meeting or I was the one that did the training with them on mandated reporting, mm-hmm. then they know me. So if I say, this is the information I'm going to give you about Susie Q. And they ask me question and I can't answer the question. They're going to trust me. Okay. So you mentioned mandated um, training on mandated reporting. How often do that needs to take place in um, the public education, public private education school system and even Mm -hmm. collegiate level? Well, I believe that it should occur every semester. I know that um, agencies and schools and institutions have annual trainings. I personally think in the education realm, it needs to happen every semester. And it not only needs to occur with the current personnel, it needs to occur with the substitutes and the volunteers um, and the school board. I always wonder, I often wonder in education, and I come from a family that has educators in it and close friends, mm-hmm. sorority sisters that have that are educators. And I often wonder, and I've asked, how many superintendents, instead of coming to the school board meeting tonight, no, 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 you're getting trained in mandating reporting. Because you need to know what the school personnel has to endure when doing this. Right. Superintendents, school boards, school commissioners, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's cafeteria, good. cafeteria workers, maintenance people, how many groundskeepers, how many of them are drawn in to these trainings? And I believe they should be done every single semester. And I know teachers are overloaded with in-services and, you know, the children get a half day, but they're there and, you know, in-service. But, you know, that's the nature of the job. None of us know everything and none of us are going to retain everything over long, long periods of time. So we just have to endure it and go to training because you don't want to be that educator that forgot something mm-hmm. or that missed something right? because you were ticked off that you had to be at the training and you weren't paying attention in the first place or the school who didn't offer it because they know the teachers is tired of that anyway. That's so good. That, that training, because every state has laws mm-hmm. about mandated reporting and people don't realize, some people don't realize you mess that up and that could be your job. Right. Not not only at that time, but that could be your that could be your job forever. You might have to switch careers because you can no longer be in that field anymore. 
And heaven forbid a teacher who has gone through school, gone through student teaching, gone through all these certifications, and now they got their class and they're doing their thing and they, they mess up because they forgot something because they really weren't paying attention or because they weren't educated well or they weren't educated often enough and they missed something and now they're at home doing something other than teaching students. That's like and, a fish out of water. Yeah, and those students are still tra traumatized because they missed that small, you know, nonverbal action by the student, you know. And, that, and they missed their teacher. Right. Was gone. And, and I know what that feels like as a child not having my teacher there. Right. And how traumatic that was a teacher not being there anymore or me thinking that I was going to have one teacher and then get to school on day one. And now somebody will like, hold up. Where, where, where's Miss So-and-so? Oh, she went to the other grade and you're going to have this teacher threw me into something for a whole academic year. Wow. I, I, yeah, I, I wasn't having it. Never did really make a connection with that teacher because I was ticked off. Wow. So other words, it's very important when a switch like that take place that that, te that new teacher really needs to reach out before the student actually come to the classroom to build, like you said, that relationship so they can understand like what you said, that play therapy, so they can understand why their favorite teacher was needed in another grade level and couldn't stay with them. And if that's not able to happen, that new teacher has got to be skilled enough mm -hmm. to be able to win that child over. That's true. Even and if, it's, if it's not for the whole academic year, even if it was for time. Right. And, and, and if they can't win them over, they have to keep with the effort. I remember um, a child, uh, I mean, a teacher that I had, they kept trying to win me over. Oh, your mommy always dressed you so cute. And this and that. I ignored it and I was mean to her and all that. But but the effort when I when, as an adult, I look back on that and I say, she was trying. She was yeah. trying. She knew I didn't like her and I didn't want to be there. But she was, she tried and she was always kind. Wow. And and she and she tried. Yeah. That's now true. the reason I, yeah, the reason I didn't want to be with her was because I saw her in situations where she wasn't kind. So I wasn't trusting. Right. That was traumatic. And that can be traumatic to a child. And they, you may never win them over. But later in life, when you are long gone, when they are long gone from that school, grown, got children they own or whatever, they can look at that at the experience and see how it worked together for their good. Right. Got it. That's good. So, Elaine, tell me, how does an educator help a trauma-affected student when they have the feeling of abandonment because they're being neglected or ignored in the home and it's impacting their daily performance in school. In other words, they're not focusing in, into instruction. They're not turning homework. They're not engaging with their peers. What recommendations or what collect, um, collateral connections does the teacher needs to do um, after she's done her due diligence of trying to um, make the child feel belong? Hmm. 
I think the first thing an educator should do is get some validation with what they think they're seeing. Got it. So if after having some parent-teacher conferences, um, talking with the child about things that they like and don't like, and, and after a thorough assessment, and I guess from a social worker standpoint, because we're always assessing, mm -hmm. and I believe educators are always assessing too, but right. the assessment is pointless if you don't gather the information and then use it. So in other words, if that student has an IEP or going back to school records from prior instructors, um, speaking with um, the, dean, the dean to see if there are any disciplinary issues, are those mm -hmm. the type of um, gathering data you're re referencing? Right. And also getting that feedback, not just from written documentation, but I mean, you're a teacher, it's your classroom. You can schedule a parent-teacher conference anytime. Right. And it doesn't have, even have to be anything about, oh, little Johnny is cutting up. So let me call his parents and say, I need to meet with them. It might be, you know what? Here's the improvements that I've seen your child um, have over the course of a month. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, Miss Jones, I really want to, I really want to talk to you about that because I need to share some exciting news with you about your child. Right. Using that as a leading. And then, and it is not lying. It's not being fake. You are, you want to share some good news. So you want to meet with Miss Jones. Mm -hmm. And then when you meet with that parent, when a teacher meets with that parent and shows all this improvement that they've gone now, now, these are the things that, you know, oh, wow, they really, but what I'm really going to be working with, with Johnny on is thus and such. Now you're getting into what you see as the issue without telling them that this is the issue. Got it. I'm really going to be working with him on, you know, when he um, knows an answer to a question, you know, just raising his hand all the way up. Because I was wondering, you know, he used to do that mm -hmm. quite often. And then lately here, you know, I can't, it seems like I can't pull stuff out of him. He seems a little down or, or a little unsure of himself. When I say, raise your hand, if you do this, he'll kind of do like that. That may start eliciting a conversation with the parent about, well, you know what, I have been working an awful lot. Mm. Or, you know, the boyfriend that I had, there was like a father to him, he left. Mm -hmm. We broke up. Or, you know... I did talk to little Johnny about next month, we may have to move. Right. And so then you'll kind of, then you'll kind of get a feel for, okay, that could be what I'm saying. Or Johnny could have even told you, my mama don't care about that. So those type of neglects, manifestations, I should say, they'll come out. And then a teacher could really address those with her. So I think parent-teacher conferences are just really effective tools and outside of the average parent-teacher conference. Oh, we have one because it's report card time. Oh, you know, think of, think of a reason to have one, you know, and um, 
I think those would be those would be very effective tools to help that child then. Oh, okay, I know mom's boyfriend that used to be like this person's father is no longer in the picture anymore. Let me try to find out where dad is. And then you might even ask the parent, well, what happened to his father? Well, his father's in jail. So this has been my boyfriend. And blah, blah, blah. And now we broke up. And then ask the parent, how do you think I should deal with that in the class? Because that takes the pressure off the teacher for always having to come up with the solution for stuff. That's good. That's ask good. the parent. Okay, so now like when y'all are at home, this is what you do when he's missing Carl. And you may call him, you may do this, you may do that. Um, how do you think I should handle that in the class? If I if I feel that he's a little sad, oh girl, play some music because he loves such and such. And and get that information from the parent. And that takes the pressure off of you as an educator to try to figure this stuff out all the time. That's good. That's good. Partnering but, but, with that parent. But in order to do that, that educator has to make sure that um, the classroom, the atmosphere is welcoming to do that because some parents have traumatic experiences or may have a bad experience in school. So how does the educator navigate that space if the parent had a traumatic experience when they was in school and dislike even talking to teachers, period? I think that starts at the very beginning, the very beginning. And I have um, several friends, like I said before, that are educators. And one of the things that uh, one of my friends did to engage with the parents is this. You know how teachers really start early mm -hmm. because they got to get their bulletin boards up. They got to get their rooms together. Mm -hmm. And they've got to get seating charts and all of that. I suggested to a teacher once, because they were a good friend of mine, to invite the parents to help. <laughs> That's good. You know, it's like, look, uh, Susie Q, I know you work down at the bank and this and that and the other, but I'm wondering if you could take an extra hour at lunch. I'll provide you with the lunch, but I really need some help getting this bulletin board up. And as that teacher is preparing all of the materials, everything all laid out, they got the little salad there too, so they can be eating and working. You, engage, you can engage with that parent. Mm. Um, especially if you've heard through the grapevine that this is a parent that may be up in your face because right. they went to this school and they had this teacher and they didn't like it and they you know, dropped out and all this kind of stuff. That is a good parent to do that with. And if they decline, at least you've made the offer. That's true. I like and that. Then, and you can even go back and say, you know what, Miss um, Jones, I know you told me no, because you didn't want to come down here to this school, you want to help me, but I had somebody they were supposed to come and help me today and they bailed. Now I'm here by myself. I don't need you to stay the whole time, but I really need some help. Somebody just helping me bring my stuff up. Can you can you come by just real quick? Even if you have to bring Johnny with you, you know, to just come and help me at least unload today. That's all I need. Wow. I made that suggestion to one of my educator friends one time. She said that lady was there to hold. She was like, I got to go home because my mama's supposed to come over there, but I'll be right back. 
<laughs> and she left and came on back. So I think that may be, you know, that that work from personal experience that has worked with the teacher that I gave that advice to. So I think it starts at the very beginning. It starts with that teacher letter, you know, who am I? What do I do? You know, and then it also can start with, okay, parent, give it to me. What are you hating about this year that your child has? To, what what is it that you and and letting them unload, right? I, as a social worker, I have had to work with some very difficult people, mm. people that don't like me, people that didn't want me in their house. They didn't like me because I was a lady. They didn't like me because I'm a black lady. They didn't like me because I'm black. They didn't like me because my, you know, why you wear your hair like a boy? I mean, all, any kind of thing that they can figure out. And it's like, okay, let's get all of that out. Mm-hmm. I, had to, I had to tell somebody's father that in my face, like this close. Man, could stand me. Call me all kind of stuff. And I had to, I did have to stop him one point. Well, hold up, sir. This is what, you know, this is where we're going to end the conversation if you call me that one more time. But now that we got all of that out, can we get to work? Because the work is me getting your child back home. Right. So a teacher can use that same modality. Okay, you have told me how you couldn't stand this so-and-so and this and that and the other, and I let you talk on. So now I'm just gonna ask you, now that now that we now that we know all of this, and if you need a couple another five minutes to tell me something that you didn't tell me or whatever, can can we now address the issue at hand, which is Johnny passing the second grade? Right. Because this is his second time in second grade. Right. So sometimes just those direct, straightforward tactics can just debunk a lot of stuff at the beginning um, and, and help a teacher move on. So that that's that hey, that that's free advice for the new teachers and for the seasoned ones who's like, girl, please, I tried that. Okay, try it again. Exactly. Every person is different. I agree. That's a good suggestion. Okay, so now what is the course of action when a trauma-affected student is being starved at home? In other words, they're hungry. They're not eating at home. And that hunger impacts how trauma-affected students learn, how they engage. So what, um, what is the tactic or the protocol for educators to address that issue and then when do they bring someone in like you into the picture Mm -hmm. well i would advise that educator to first maybe find out why Mm -hmm. are they not eating at home because there is some abuse and neglect going on there where that food is used as punishment wow um because that can you can handle that a whole different way right if that child is not being fed at home because there's limited income making sure that that um, parent know the resources Um, even if a parent does know the resources sometimes they're too proud and they won't take advantage of things right um so then at school you may be able to um mitigate some of that by 
um, at snack time, making sure the cafeteria has some extra granola bars up there because you know that Johnny may want to take them home. Mm-hmm. And shoot, you can even, you know, let Johnny know after school that you can put an extra granola bar in his backpack. But this is just for tomorrow or for breakfast, though. So keep that in your backpack. And then on the way, when you get on the bus, or, you know, right when you're waiting for the bus, you can be eating that. But tell your mommy that that's in there, you know, um, so that you can have something when you come back because we have some extras. That's just a little simple way. Um, making sure at lunchtime that they have a lunch. You know, some parents, oh, you know, I didn't sign up for the free lunch program. My child don't like that lunch or whatever. You know, talking with the cafeteria, letting them know what's going on, you know, talk to the budget people, whoever's dealing with that, make sure that they get an adequate lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I even advised the teacher one time, in addition to like the granola bar, and the bag, you know what? They got some extra slices of pizza. Anyway, who want to take one home? <laughs> you know, and then just letting them, you know, do that. Um, in addition to just kind of finding out what's going on and it could be something medical going on with that child you know mom's like you know what well, I sit the food you know he just doesn't eat and this and that wow does he have a tummy ache is he swallowing good it may you know swallow study may be in order you know maybe something's going on in you know gastrointestinal issues so the assessment piece is really important before we jump to conclusions right um, and before we put people on the spot to have to address it, Johnny will be able to tell you, who's Tommy Ground? Even if, you know, even if you don't hear nothing, mm-hmm. that's not lying. Who's Tommy Ground? Not, you didn't say, I heard somebody. Something. Who's Tommy Ground? You're asking a question. That's mine. I'm hungry. You know, children, <laughs> you know, children, t- you know, little children, they may say, I'm hungry. My, that was me, you know, or that was him, you know. Well, ooh, it must be time for us to have a snack. You're not singling him out. Right. Or you might just say, I heard somebody's stomach growling. Let's just pause for snack. Wow. If you know that child is hungry. And then doing some of that, seeing if that mitigates it before you just really dive in you know just trying to solve the problem because sometimes it'll it'll solve itself um and then of course if it's something real serious like you know johnny tells you my mommy wouldn't let me eat dinner last night because i hit my sister or something like that then hmm, do i jump and call child protective services on that or do i you know kind of see how that plays out Mm. next day oh so oh i know last night you your mom sent you to bed without no dinner but you must have ate like a dog tonight and then if they say mm, we had this we had that well then you kind of know right exactly but then if we say, uh-uh, i did such and such and she wouldn't let me well okay now we see in a pattern that mm. we may have to address Got it. So but watch just out. Real, but, but delicately, you know, and even as, as uh, we talked a lot about younger children, but then as children get older, mm-hmm. you know, um, a lot may be going on in the home as teenagers, um, a lot going on with the teenagers is causing them to lose their appetite. You know, I'm, I'm sad because my boyfriend broke up with me, so I don't feel like eating. 
you know, come to find out they ain't eating three days. Their mother, their parents don't even know because their parents, they have a, um, a mode of eating in their house where they can take it up to their room. Instead of around a dinner table to make sure they're eating. Children yeah. can be throwing it up. Bulimia and, you know, eating disorders are very prevalent. And so the parent could not even know. So it's really important to do that thorough assessment of the situation for educators because you can jump to the conclusion thinking a parent's not feeding their child. And it's that, no, she's 16 now. She want to talk on the phone with her friends. She want to eat with her friends on Zoom so they could be talking about, you know, what they made or whatever. I thought she was eating. I didn't know she was throwing that stuff out the window. Right. That's and you done called Child Protective Services and they done done it. And, and that's what they find out in the investigation. You may feel this big. So it's really important to do that thorough assessment um, first. I love that suggestion because you made me thought about even when I was teaching in uh, workforce education, um, some of the students um, was coming to class and a lot of them were hungry. They wasn't eating because when we prepare for lunch, I see who either brought lunch, you know, who want to stay in the classroom and study and skip eating. So I started intentionally every week, we were playing a potluck on Fridays. Mm -hmm. And I would tell everybody to bring enough food. So what all leftovers, we divvied it up. So everybody got to take food home for the weekend. So they wasn't hungry. So that was my kind of creative way when I taught in the collegiate level. And even in the middle and high school level, I will always, I had this farmer to donate fresh fruit. So I will always have apples and pears and oranges in the classroom. And the students didn't have to ask. It was no ask. You know, you didn't, if you're hungry, you just get it so you can eat. And if I see more than one student, you know, was going at the fruit, I say, okay, y'all, let's just like you said, let's have a snack time break or a bathroom mm -hmm. break. That way they get some time to eat, refill, replenish, because we know when a student is hungry, it's hard for them to focus in the classroom to do so. So thank you for reminding me of that strategy. And I hope this technique and strategy will help educators and educators, you don't have to um, spend money out your pocket there are organizations and farms and grocery stores that will donate to you and also sporting events I had an educator once that I said hey um, talk to the principal about these particular students that you feel um, are not getting enough to eat at home I've, I've had the situation only because these were students that took advantage of the summer mobile unit that went out and fed people. Uh-huh. And um, sporting events is a good way to do it. So if the, say the school says, all right, well, you know what, we're going to give um, $50 to the concession stand. Great. Then I'm making up these cute little tickets because I know they come into the ball game. Mm -hmm. And here's your, you know, for everybody that opens their book within the next five seconds, blah, 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 you're going to get a ticket. And tonight, if you come into the football game, you can go get a hot dog, you know. So that's a that's an easy way to um, do it without shaming. Right. Um, because children like to earn things. Right. Families like to earn things. Right. You know, take these papers home, make sure your 
parents sign them. I don't care if you are in a, in a, a, a junior in high school. Have your parents sign off on this essay that you did. Make sure your parent read this essay. And if they sign off on it, you get some credit. Well, they may not know that the credit is going to be, you know, when lunchtime come and they have an open, if they have an open campus, you can go over there and get your order of chicken nuggets. Right. That's true. So those are good and innovative ways to, and even build partnerships. Like you said that farmers, you know, were donating things, especially in these areas where um, there are stores near a school, you can work out any kind of deal with, Mm -hmm. um, and I think about um, my sister and I were, uh, leaving a school area once she had already retired and we saw the boys walking back to the school because they have open campus walking back from school we could tell they went to the grocery store why because one of them was carrying a rotisserie chicken now it was hilarious (laughs) (laughs) they don't carry rotisserie chicken but we had just come out of that store and we knew that you know how they they time the chickens Mm-hmm. Don't take them off the shelf, right? Well, these children knew when the times was going to get, and they go over there. I know you're not going to throw them chickens, and you know we just imagine this over there. I know you're not going to throw them chickens away, but they was walking back to campus, and they had that little thing. And I said, if that is not a rotisserie chicken, so people will partner with you if you you just ask. But you know what? You made me thought about too, because a lot of times some children, probably middle high school and some college, have food stamps. So they may not have cash. So having that partnership, like you say, with the community store or the grocery, they can use the food stamp cards to get them something to eat because they may have to pay for lunch at school or what they offer at school is not fulfilling enough to to make sure that they're full. So right. I like that um and taking the sh- and taking the shaming out. I mean, you know, food stamps and assistance, it is there to help people. And taxpayers, um the taxpayers I know, they don't gripe and complain that their tax dollars are going to help somebody get something to eat. Mm-hmm. Um and so making sure that 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 shame is out of it and just just thinking of slick ways to do stuff and making sure that, you know, we're being respectful. That's true. I like it. Everyone, we're talking about best practices for trauma-informed students K through 20 with the amazing um, social worker. I call her social worker on demand, Elaine M. (laughs) Brandon. She is giving us some insight and helping educators, you know, how to address trauma-affected students because we have had trauma affected students prior to this pandemic, but the pandemic has really bolstered the trauma even the more where our country is really more getting more concerned and having conversations about mental health. And with our children, it's difficult for them to talk about because they may not have the words to discuss, but they do display and demonstrate it through body language. So our next question is, what are the indicators when a trauma-affected student is being bullied by a single parent and siblings in the home? Hmm. Well, a couple of things. They can be bullied them, bullies themselves. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they feel like they don't have that control over 
you know, what's going on in this situation at home so they can come to school. And if they have control there, they can bully other people. They will. And then the flip side, I'm being bullied at home. So now I'm going to buy all my friends. I'm going to be real nice to people. I'm going to be a friend at all costs, which can cause them to be very vulnerable and be taken advantage of. Because they don't understand that happy medium. They're doing whatever they need to do not to be yelled at, hit, or do whatever. So they'll take a lot of abuse. So they'll become victims themselves. So now they're being traumatized because they're a victim at school because they're allowing it. And then at home as well. So we see those students that um, you think, well, why are you letting them run over you? That could be a reason. Overcompensating. And so helping students um, find that happy medium. There's so many lessons on anti-bullying. There's so, the curriculums are full of that these days because people are really trying to, you know, tone that down. Using things, um, news stories that they may even be aware of, using... um, and when I say news stories, I'm talking TikTok videos, reels, the stuff that the young people look at nowadays. Right. Um, and I say young people, even a college student. I just taught a um, course on civic participation for an organization that preps uh, middle school and high school students for college. And one of the things that one of the students says, she's a high schooler. I just love getting on um social media and just looking at all the TikTok videos. Mm. So using some of those as material, letting the students, um, hey, we're going to access uh, TikTok videos today. And they can all turn your phones on if you have them. If you don't have a phone, scoot your chair over to somebody with a phone and let's look at these videos. And then you as an educator, can show some of your favorite ones and it can show of people being kind to each other right siblings helping each other there's a couple of uh, cute ones that i even look at now these little twin boys Mm -hmm. and they have a they have a channel (laughs) and their father is always videotaping them being kind to each other helping each other sometimes they roll on the ground and they fight but then they get up and they hug Uh and so showing those and having those conversations uh, with the whole class because if that one child is coming there being the bully because they bullied at home or being the victim because they're being bullied at home they can all learn from it and then and then a key thing is the trauma that the children are facing watching it Sometimes we forget about that because we're so into Johnny who's trying to beat up people. We're so into Susie Q who is allowing people to take advantage of her. But we forget sometimes about those ones that are watching it. Wow. So educators could think about how they feel when they're driving down the highway and they see a rollover. Lord, please bless those people. I mean, all kind of stuff we do because we've seen that and we're affected by that trauma of watching something traumatic. So those students that are not even being bullied, 
those students that have never been bullied, those, those students that could never think of bullying somebody, they are traumatized and affected by seeing somebody pick on somebody and they can't do nothing about it because they're scared. Wow. Or because they feel they're, they're small and they can't beat up big so-and-so or they'll, the retaliation they will get if they tell. That's true. And so they are experiencing equal trauma. So doing it to the, for the whole class to see, that can inadvertently help somebody. And, I, and, I, and the reason I say that is because I had an educator that whenever they did stuff, it was like class-wide. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until later in life that I realized that that, because this was an educator that was close to our family, Mm-hmm. And had shared some things with me um, as I got to be an adult, not naming names, but telling me that there was somebody in the class that had experienced that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the reason that this educator shared this with me is because I shared with them how I stood up to bullies at school who was bullying someone else. Wow. And how I wasn't getting ready to have it. And how I went to the principal's office and told the principal on the teachers that watched it. Wow. And I was hot. And I had to watch myself. My parents would let me know, you know, we can't have you go to school fighting the kids. Well, I'm going to beat them up if they keep on messing with her, you know. And so in sharing that with this former educator, this educator actually was, she was my second grade teacher but friends of our family and in sharing that with her that's when she shared with me the method to her madness Mm. wow so I use that as a tool because I didn't realize that the lessons that she taught in that class um and it wasn't so much about bullies because when I was in second grade I mean I'm old so when I was in second grade the word bully it, it wasn't really prevalent as it is now, right. but when she did that universal thing that really helped me in that moment as a middle school, a junior high student that I didn't even realize till I became an adult of where all that came from. So an educator is so influential mm-hmm. and that any small thing or any big thing they could do to address an issue like that it's going to have an impact i'm almost 59 years old and that lesson in second grade that carried over to junior high is still it, it still um resonates in my soul and has and causes me to make certain decisions now in my career that i may not otherwise make that's good that's good so I'm thinking now because of the polarized political climate that has infused into education and the bully may intensify, especially for black and brown students and indigenous students. And a lot of times depends on family tradition, cultures and rituals. These students are told not to tell and share everything that's going on or how they're feeling because of the attention the parents will get, especially if they're illegal immigrants. How does a educator from a social worker perspective help those students 
stand up to the bullying like you're talking about and not take it without drawing any attention to their parents that may cause either them to be separated from them, have their parents deported, have their parents arrested. The dynamics is very hard and a lot of weight is being placed on educators now to be more than just the classroom instructor, more than just the classroom mother. What insight or protocols or best practices can you share specifically under bullying, but that has a, a racism, racism component underneath it? I think a lot of it can stem from self-awareness that can be incorporated in your everyday curriculum. For example, if Johnny is good at adding, mm -hmm. or Susie Q, who is a senior in high school, getting ready to go off to college, is good at um, verbal expression can talk our way out of a paper bag. Mm -hmm. So using the curriculum, I think, would enhance that. So uh, if Johnny is feeling so good about himself because he can add, to make him add everything. Everything. Every single time. I mean, and you can use those examples, you know, every single time you, a uh, red car passes by when you're, when you're in the car, count it, mm -hmm. four red cars, plus four blue cars, equal how many cars, and then even incorporate it and, and kind of make it up like a jokey joke, whenever your, if your mama's yelling at you, okay, Johnny, Johnny, did you do that? She didn't nail me two times. You know, you're adding things up and making it a game. Self-awareness. So that they're not so much focused on the fact that um, mama's yelling mm -hmm. at me, being mean, my brother's calling me names. They're, they're counting. They're adding. When you think about comedians, some of the funniest jokes or about what happened to somebody in their childhood. Mm -hmm. And then if you think about some of them jokes, you're thinking, that wasn't really funny. But it's funny because of what they turned it into. Right. And so I think tapping into uh, that child's creative is going to help them internalize their own creative to where some of that noise is going to be blocked out. They're going to be it. able to put that in perspective. Right. You know what? Mama yelling because mama tired. Right. They'll, they'll eventually be able to rationalize, rationalize that because I'm doing well at this. I'm doing good. Even though she's yelling at me because my room ain't clean, but I'm thinking, dang, room is clean. Mama just tired. Not that they'll minimize that, but they'll be able to maybe put some of those things in perspective. Right. Even what, even if they're being bullied, if they are so in tune to themselves, they can eventually rationalize. That is just a problem. Right. They ain't got nothing to do with me. I didn't do nothing to you. Why are you picking on me? I didn't do anything to you. Oh, you just picking on me because you mean. 
okay, well, here's, this is how this is going to play out. This is kind of what can go through their mind. So I think self-awareness is just so important. And a teacher ha has a clean slate and, and, and is a very good influencer of helping someone be aware of who they really are. Even when they don't know who they are. What? You can sharpen pencils like that? Okay, excuse me, everybody. Bring your pencils up so such and such can sharpen them. Because you're just really good at that. Oh my gosh. That's good. That that child is like, oh man, you know, I am the king of pencil sharpeners. How, how, we, we do that all the time as adults. Right. As adults, I am the queen of putting on lashes. I am the queen of the... You, we call ourselves that stuff all the time. So if, if a teacher fosters that into a child, their own self-awareness, you know, uh, who don't want to be the door holder? Right. Who don't want to be the line leader? Mm -hmm. Who gets mad that so-and-so is the door holder and they're not? That's a good way you could tap into that. So and so, I saw you frown when I let Susie Q be the door holder. Why? Because she always get to hold the door. Okay, well, what is something that you would like to do? Because she holding the door today. Right. So tapping into, I think, um, a child's creative. Of course, that's going to take knowing that child. That's going to take knowing something about what's going on with them at after school. You know, if you know that child goes to gymnastics practice. Tell a child, you know what? Uh, I know you go to gym gymnastics. This is what I'm gonna need you to do. Cause where ha what happened to show and tell? You know that that's the thing. Some of those fundamental things, I think we've gotten away from mm -hmm. because some of the new school educators um, may think it's silly. I've heard. Mm -hmm. I've heard some new school educators just kind of think that's silly or that's old school or children don't like that. Huh. I told you about the teddy bear care fair. Right. You would be a I have a friend right now whose daughter is getting ready to be 11 years old and she just posted on social media that they are on a vacation mm -hmm. and her child is sitting there FaceTiming with some cousins. Mm-hmm. And her baby doll is sitting right there and she combing her hair and she's showing her the clothes. 11. Yeah. So tapping into a child's creative is mm -hmm. going to be key. So a teacher knowing that this child is coming to their classroom, knowing that this child still plays with dolls. Right. And it's a cool thing. That teacher can do the world show and tell. Like, y'all, bring y'all favorite stuff. You can get to know so much about, we did, I did show and tell as a senior. Wow. I had a teacher in my high school that had show and tell. Well, that I guess. That was just right. something she did. That was just something she did. And people brought all kind of stuff. I remember bringing my daddy's watch one time, I, you know, just all kind of stuff. And so if you tap into a child's creative, they then feel a sense of pride about themselves, which can then ward off somebody trying to take control of them, somebody trying to belittle them, 
because right. they'll, they'll, they'll stand up to it. And people, and, and then also last thing, knowing that people are going to stand up to things in different ways. Right. I, I'm very forward, straight to the point. I'm going to stand up a lot of times with these lips and with these, this face, I'm going to stand up to you. Right. Cause I know how to talk. I know how to look. I got the body language going on. There's some people that don't, they don't have that. Right. They, 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 I've, I've had peers and even young people tell me, you know, I feel kind of fake. <laughs> okay. Well do how you do. They stand up to a bully just like this. Yeah. So also uh, educators being keyed in on that so that, no, they're not being taken advantage of. They they letting that person talk to them any old kind of way. It's kind of like that movie Friday Mm -hmm. where um, Chris Tucker said, yeah, I see Debo talking to me and I'm going to be quiet. But when he leaves, I'm gonna start talking again, you know. So right. So you think, oh, they're being bullied. Oh my gosh, this is bad. But you realize, uh-uh, they are protecting themselves. They are protecting themselves from being suspended from school because they know if they say something to this person, they're gonna up the ante and they're gonna be fisticuffs. And now I'm suspended. Now I'm in tr- in trouble at home. Exactly. So I'm just gonna sit here. I'm not taking. I'm not being no board man. Trust a right. spiritual child. A spiritual child child who goes to church mm-hmm. they praying mm. lord please let this bully please let someone so shut their dog on and i know that because i was one of them children mm-hmm. that knew that if i got to talking it was gonna be no stopping me from telling you off from going there i would be i was ushered out the out the classroom one time still hollering Hey, y'all mama, you know, all of that. So I knew, I know where I can go. Right. Because I was a spiritual child though. Right. And I was learning how to pray and all of this stuff. I could sit there while you, and I'll just be like, "Mm -hmm, Lord, I know I'm going to be quiet. I know, but I know you're going to get them. I know you don't get them. You know, so a child could be doing that and you don't know. But if you're in tune, Mm -hmm. doing that assessment. I know I keep saying that word over and over and over and over again. But as a social worker, that's what we do. And that's what I teach. You've got to know what's going on before you can try to tackle it. That's good. That is very good. I totally agree with you about the... um, about the praying part, you know, because it's not the fact that the child has an attitude, they just have standards because the way they're raised. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they walk away or don't respond because they just like you say it, they're not <laughs> afraid of the bullet. They afraid what you're you're gonna do or what they're gonna do that gonna have ramifications that's gonna get them out of the classroom and they're gonna miss work, they're gonna miss assignments because they retaliated or they responded. And that's where the teacher has to, you know, step up, like you said, assessment and self-aware to you know shut that down so it doesn't get to that point so i appreciate you bringing that out Mm because that is so true especially with black and brown students because some teachers are not aware of those cultural rituals and protocols and mechanisms that parents teach those students on self-control 
you know, yeah. because they explain, okay, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And, then, and then, and the child struggles because they too may not know, don't take my kindness for weakness, that mentality, but that's really what it is. Like, no, I've got to stand up. I've got to let them know that they can't disrespect me. Right. And so that could be why the child is so boisterous boisterous but like you said the norms at home might be uh you need to figure out a different kind of way mm-hmm. that you can keep them off of you because if you come home with another note right it's gonna be on right you know so understanding where that child is and then helping them build that self-confidence that right. they don't have to always respond that they don't in, in that way they, they can respond in another way. Uh, now we sitting down in the cafeteria. I'm going to get my tray and I'm going to leave. Oh, I get it. I don't want to sit by you. The way right. you was just talking to me earlier today, you don't get the pleasure of sitting by me and we're going to be jokey joking and kiki and you're going to be out of it. So I may not have handled it in the classroom being all up in your face, you know, talking about you, but that's how I'm going to handle it. Uh, oh, Turn and double dutch. Can I can I come in? We have enough people. So learning how and, and then learning those norms. And that goes back to those families and those parents and finding out what are their norms in their home? What are their values? Um, how do they handle certain situations? Posing those questions. Right. I had a I had an educator um, send a questionnaire home. Um, as part of the parents getting to know you, here's he, here's me. Graduated from here. I did this, did this, did this. Now I want to know something about you. And they gave vignettes and yes. had the parents do like a multiple choice. In this kind of situation, how would you advise your child to answer this? How would you advise your child to ask that? And so I know with educators, so overloaded with from the political standpoint of having to watch what they say and watch what they do, you know, don't want parents in their face, trying to get the test scores this way, and then teaching the curriculum. And it's a lot of stuff. Yes. Mm-hmm. But, the, the, but the key and the skill that teachers do have is to learn how, is, is to know how to incorporate all of that into their current curriculum. Just like us social workers, you know, um, I'm in a I'm in a hospital setting right now, but I gotta pull everything that I've learned and all the tools that I have from these other jobs to now cut it on here. That's no different. That's good. And it may sound like, oh my gosh, it's so much, it's so much. Well, if an educator puts in perspective, like I have to do a lot of times as a social worker, but you know what? I'm here. From 8.30 to 4.30. So if this is what I'm doing in the time that I'm here, that's what you're paying me for, that's the even exchange. Okay. Then it makes it seem less traumatic for the educator. Oh my gosh, they're giving me one more thing to do. Mm -hmm. They are. But you come to work every day for this amount of time. You get paid this amount of money to do this thing so if you put it in perspective of this is the exchange oh okay so now you want me to do this okay i'll do that because at three o'clock i'm out of here 
So this is what I'm doing for my paycheck now. Okay, this is what we're doing. All right, I'm doing this. Give me my money at the end of two weeks. So sometimes that's how we can reduce the trauma in our own mind while we're helping other people reduce the trauma by keeping in perspective of number one, you're doing something that you like, mm -hmm. that you invested time and money into, and you get paid. That's true. That's true. That's good. Our last question. Um, those of you that's lit, tuning in and listening, we're talking about best practices for trauma-informed students, K through 20, with um, the amazing social work on demand, Elaine M. Brandon. And we're just taking a deep dive on some vignettes, some conversations, some questions, and some best practices to help trauma-affected students, not just for educators, um, the collateral connections, a new term that Elaine introduced <laughs> me to, and even some strategies for parents who may experience their own trauma, as well as educators with their own trauma. Because how can you help a trauma-affected student if you cannot confront and deal with your own traumas? So our last question, how do you support a trauma-affected student of a single parent of six children married when, a, um, when the student is two years old and they don't know who their father is mm -hmm. and desires to know, but the single parent refuses to talk about it? And so, for instance, like you was talking about the show and tell or career day, and the teacher says, okay... Today, you know, bring it, you know, this is father, father and child day. And this particular student don't participate and doesn't have that father role model. And this mm -hmm. question comes up and the educator is concerned and solicits your help for protocols or advice. Mm -hmm. What would you suggest? I would first ask the educator, what do they know about the child's father? You know, if a parent has six children, you know, talking to some of those other teachers that have had those other students, you might be able to know. Um, well, yeah, you know, she has three, you know, fathers involved and this person's father, she really don't know who that one is. You know, you, you can find that out by talking to some other teachers who, have, who may have had those other students. That's one way. Another way could be instead of only having um, bring your father to school day, make it bring an important man day because that child may also have a grandpa or an right. uncle or a cousin. Um, and then having activities that may elicit how each of them feel about each other. Right. So that even though the reality may be this mother's not going to talk about this father, whatever efforts are put in place for the relationship, there's not going to be one. You know, this, this is that extreme of this ain't going to happen. Right. Then what do we do to help that child fill that void? Another really good thing that um, I've seen teachers do, and you have to be real careful these days because there are a lot of kooks, but pen pals are really, really good. And pen pals with um, a celebrity or a local official or somebody 
in town that's prevalent, like uh, the NAACP president or the director of Big Brothers Big Sisters, you know, have a child associate with men that um, are important to them. I've had family members who don't have their fathers um, in the home, but there were good deacons at church. There were good principals, school personnel. Um, there's fraternities, especially if you live in a community that has a fraternity. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of educators, men and women, that belong to fraternities and sororities. Wow. When I was in college, I started a big brother, big sister type program at a community center where I was assistant director. And the people that I chose to come in were fraternity and sorority members, were athletes at the college. Come down, y'all need to come down here and spend time with these, play some pool, do something, you know, with these children. And it can be formal, like a big brother's big sister's type, hey, here's your match, blah, blah, blah. Or it can be informal. I saw on a post once, and I thought this was one of the most wonderful ideas. On the first day of school at this boys' school, mm -hmm. fathers in the community did a parade. Oh, wow. And they lined up on each side of the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. They had somebody with a jam box playing in the background. Mm -hmm. with, you know, the most popular song that all the young people like. Right. They had the boys come through that line. And they were slapping five. They was doing fist bumps. They was, you know, you going to have a good day in school today. Uh -huh. You know, those kind of things can be good um, subs. Mm -hmm. They can be good substitutes. They could be very comforting, very nurturing. Um, having the maintenance person, if that person is a male, come in your classroom and get the trash when the children are there. Right. Hey, Mr. So-and-so. Um, so I think exposing them to that type of situation while at the same time doing your private parent teacher conferences, trying to have that conversation with the parent and just not from the standpoint that you're trying to solve it, but letting the parent know, I'm just trying to understand it because I know that, you know, Johnny has mentioned, I don't have a daddy. Or, you know, so I'm just kind of wanting to know what that looks like in your home, not so that I can advise you about anything or whatever, but I'm just trying to figure out the best way um, to engage Johnny in education, knowing that this is something that is makes him sad, seems to make him sad or that he seems to struggle with. So, you know. And I appreciate you, you know, telling me your story and, and know that it, it, it stops here. It doesn't leave the room, you know, that kind of thing, having that kind of, but, but if you have not built that rapport with the parent, they're going to ask you what you in my business for. Exactly. This ain't none of your business. Right. And, and even if you get that, if you built a rapport, mm -hmm. but that's a touchy subject, bringing up some trauma for that parent. Now you ask me this personal business. What's this about? Mm -hmm. Be up front, tell them what's about. Well, doggone it. We getting ready to have the father-daughter dance. Mm -hmm. And I know 
that Susie Q has said that she don't have a father. And so I'm trying to figure out because the school is gonna have this dance, Miss Jones. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out how do we have this dance where your daughter can participate like some of the other girls, not feel bad about it in this dance. What do you, you know, what do you, what do you think I should do? I'm, I don't know what to do, Miss Jones. That's why I'm coming to you. So pause. That kind of brings the trauma down for Miss Jones because now somebody's looking for her help. Yeah. While somebody always been telling Miss Jones what to do, what not to do, this and that and that, been traumatized by everybody trying to be in her business. Now this teacher is showing themselves vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. How should we do this? Because this dance is coming up in two weeks and I'm really nervous that Susie Q is going to be feeling bad if she's not going. And the children going to come back with all the TikTok videos and the pictures and all of this and she's not going to have that and I'm trying for her not to have that experience so I need to know how about you know what what can we brainstorm and do I love that word brainstorm I love the word brain dump brainstorm because then that lets people know we're thinking we're working together we're sharing this experience and then that parent gets to see we're really trying to help my child yeah that's good. I like that. So that's kind of that's kind of how I would um, advise a teacher to do some of those things. And and I, and just so you know, I've I've dealt with enough educators just in my personal life and also in my professional life to where there is going to be that educator that has tried everything mm-hmm. and or, or or is able to tell you because you're not in a class, girl, that ain't gonna work. So. I say to educators who can have that response to think outside of that response. You know, it's kind of like um, if somebody told you, uh, if you said, well, you know what? I just can't stop doing such and such. Uh Uh-huh. Somebody had a gun to your head and said, you better not say that no more. I bet your mouth is shut. So I tried to tell the teacher, okay. You tried that, you know this won't work, and this one just do it anyway. What is it gonna hurt you to do it anyway? It's not. What is it gonna hurt you to do it over? You did it two classes ago and that turned out to be a disaster. Okay, what did you learn from it? Let's repeat it. Right. And to the educator that's saying to the social worker, this is easier said than done because you're not in the class. Mm-hmm. I say to that educator. You are in a profession as an educator. Social work is a profession. Y'all are both professionals. You have experiences that the social worker don't have. Social worker got experiences you don't. Learn from each other. Try stuff out. As long as it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical, try stuff out. No harm, no foul. If it don't work, it just don't work. Then you just come up with something else. Just like if you're cooking dinner. If the folk don't like the way you fried the chicken in the breadcrumbs from the Kroger, then, oh, I ain't getting them no more. I'm going to go get the breadcrumbs from. (laughs) So we we have to think in terms of that as opposed to being so overwhelmed and so traumatized ourselves that we don't try other things. I'll close with this. I have a friend who 
is an educator. Um, an educator for 30 years, recently retired, 30 years in the same school. Wow. This girl is so innovative, so educated, so fun. And I'll tell you, in 30 years, I've never seen her turn cynical. I've seen her be angry about different stuff that come down the pike, whether it's policies or procedures or a parent just acted ignorant to her or whatever. But had that longevity in her business because of the fact that she did things that she knew to do. She wasn't close to advice. She was always thinking of what can I do better? And she was always aware that she was doing a good job. Even if it wasn't as effective, she knew she was doing all she could do. So to those educators, I say that. Think of those people that you know that are doing what you do, that are successful at it. And, and mimic it. A lot of the things that I've told you today, those are things that actually happen. Things that I've mimicked. I've gotten it from other people. If I had to do a footnote, it'll be this long. Right. Because over the 36 years that I have been in this business, I have encountered so many people, social workers and collateral contacts that have taught me so much that have taught me what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say. I've observed a lot. I've helped a lot. And they can do that too. And all the things that we need to do to uh, decrease the burnout, decrease the cynicism, all the stuff that you know, the 10 ways to relax, the whatever, do those things. <laughs> right. Because that's going to help you have longevity in this business that is going to help you put your own stuff in perspective so you can help somebody with their stuff that's going to help you with that keen mind to assess not jump to conclusions and also one last important thing that if you do get it wrong mm -hmm. that you can self-correct that you can learn from it. Hopefully there was no harm, no foul, but even if there was harm, mm -hmm. that you could still course correct and, and make it right so that you're not re-traumatizing yourself or other people. That is beautiful. I love it. I love it. Well, everyone, we have been listening and talking with an intimate, deep conversation with Elaine and Brandon on best practices for trauma-informed students K through 20. I just want to say thank you so much for all the insight, the stories, the best practices, the protocols, your personal experience, and even some of the nuggets and advice that you have given for educators. It was uh, two phrases that you said that stuck out to me that educators need to remember. Students like to earn. Parents like to earn. So sometimes as educators, we always want to help and give and give handouts. But if you want to do that, like Elaine said, be creative and let the students earn it. Let the parents earn it. 
you know, let your parents come help you set the classroom up, you know, this summer for the fall, you even bring the students with you. So that way you build a rapport, not just with the parents, but with the children too. So I love that so much, but this series on best practices for trauma-informed students K through 20, we all know trauma by its nature involves root inequities that often drive and exacerbate adverse conditions or traumatic events within families and thus leads to behavior issues that bloom in the classroom. And that derives from adverse childhood experiences such as maternal depression, emotional and sexual abuse, substance abuse, domestic violence, homelessness, incarceration, mental health, divorce, physical and emotional neglect. Miss Elaine has talked about all those things and these questions that we went through with her today. And then the adverse community environments, we have to also be aware as educators, the environments that they live in, the poverty, which we address, discrimination, community disruption, the lack of opportunities, economic mobility and social capital, poor housing quality and affordability and violence. So Miss Elaine, without even knowing all of those components, you covered all of them in my oh. questions today. And I truly appreciate you for this. So before we conclude this amazing interview for best practices for trauma-informed students K through 20, what will be your, your first call to actions for educators after watching this amazing presentation? I would challenge you educators to partner, 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 partner. You can never have too many partners and whatever you can do to engage your collateral contact. I don't care if it's um, have a, a, a Facebook group. I don't care if it's having a Zoom party where y'all just are line dancing. I mean, whatever it is you need to do to partner with those collateral contacts so that you know what they can offer. They know what you are offering and what struggles you are facing so that y'all can come together as a unit, as a team and help each other give these students exactly what they need. I also challenge you to be prepared if something that you do does not work. Wow. Let it still work itself. I guarantee you. Some of you educators can probably relate and know that children come back to you all the time as adults telling you what you did that impacted them, that you don't even remember doing that, that they are happy that their children are now coming to you for those that are living in the same community because they remember something that you did. Oh, I did that? Oh, I said that? I know because I experienced that as a social worker. I just had a child. Well, she ain't a child anymore. She's grown and married, but I held her in my arms when she was two years old because I held her in my arms when she was a month old, wow. protected her from an abusive family, did whatever I could do in my power to make sure that she not have an association with that family, but that she was in a new family. That's her forever family. This girl turned to me when her parent could not be 
in her labor and delivery room when she thought it was time for her to have her baby due to COVID. I got that privilege. Wow. And and things that I did and said, I mean, she didn't know that when she was a month old that I was holding her, praying over her and singing over her and protecting her because I could feel in her body the tenseness, the trauma that she felt when her parents came into the visiting room before they even opened the door to come in our area. And we figured it out with the help of some doctors that it was the smell mm. that was letting her know that these people were here. And that was traumatic for her because she had been abused so bad. Wow. Well, this girl is now an adult. And I may not have done everything right as a social worker. In fact, my job was in jeopardy a couple times with her case, but um, she came back and is now an adult letting me know what kind of impact certain things that I did and certain things I said and certain things I didn't do um, impacted her life. And now she's a mom and she's going to be using some of those tools as traumatized as she has been over her life because she couldn't have her family, her birth family, but she's able to use those tools. So you never know what impact you are having and you may not ever know. You might not have a situation like me where somebody come back and tell you, good job, girl. So I challenge you to be confident in the things that you're doing are kind, are ethical, are moral, are legal. And they're going to impact somebody's life. And you have to sit in that comfort. So two challenges. Partner with people. Do the best job you can do. And believe that you are having a positive impact on somebody. Thank you so much, Elaine, for that advice. The deep dive conversations and thought-provoking strategies for not self-awareness for us as educators, but self-awareness for our parents, our guardians, our grandparents, students, and making sure we create those collateral collections. Thank you so much. You all have been listening to Best Practices for Trauma-Informed, Trauma-Affected Students K-20 through with Elaine M. Brandon, Licensed Master Social Worker, Certified Acute Social Worker Case Manager, and Certified Case Manager. So if you would love to hear more or want to have Elaine come speak to your students, your teachers, Ms. Brandon, how do they get in contact with you? The best way is to go to my link tree. <laughs> Elaine M. Brandon. Follow me on Linktree and you'll be able to see all of the things that I'm involved in. And yes, I will definitely love to come and be a part of anything that anybody this is doing that is positive. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. I hope I've been helpful. And um, I just wish all educators all the success. I know the school year is coming up and um, it is going to be great. It's going to be great for you. I, that is my prayer. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And remember, best practices for trauma-affected students. Just because they're not telling you what's wrong doesn't mean nothing is not wrong. 
Uh, like Elaine says, do your assessment. Don't jump to conclusions. Get all the facts first. This is Teresa W. Gamble, a PhD doctoral candidate of trauma-informed educational practices, along with social-emotional learning with North Central University. Thank you, Elaine. Smooches. You've been listening to Courageous Conversation with Teresa W. Gamble. Courageous Conversation is powered by Carcier Resource Professional Consultant.